From the new Amsterdam to the booth, New York City is home to a variety of majestic theaters. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. On this morning's show, we'll delve into the history of some of Broadway's theaters, performances, and costumes. And later, we'll find out how the famed Beacon Theater on Manhattan's Upper West Side was saved from the clutches of real estate developers and disrepair. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Glad you're with us. When people buy Broadway tickets, they're paying to see the show, not the theater that hosts it. But Broadway theaters themselves are a fascinating bunch, with rich histories and spectacular architecture. Joining us now to talk about some of those theaters is Robert Viagas. Robert is program director of Playbill Radio and the author of a dozen books on the theater. Robert, welcome to Cityscape. Thanks for having me in here. How do you view theaters? Do you see them as characters with their own unique personalities? Oh, I love the theaters. You know what the theaters are? They're big musical instruments. That's what they are. The stage is like the mouthpiece, and the house is like the bell on like a big horn. And actors who are trained, who, are, who know how to project, they can stand on the stage and they can speak in normal conversational tone and be heard in the back of the house. They were designed to do that. How old is the oldest theater currently on Broadway? There were a bunch of the theaters were built in fall of 1903. It was a boom time. They were bringing in the subway so that theater could become something that was not just a Manhattan manifestation. It was became a citywide and, in fact, a region-wide phenomenon when they brought in the subway, which opened in 1904 in what was then Longacre Square, and it was renamed Times Square because the New York Times was uh, located there. But in 1903, there was a building boom, and a bunch of the theaters, including the New Amsterdam, the wonderful New Amsterdam, which was uh, rehabbed by Disney, and a couple of the other theaters opened that fall within weeks of each other. So you say, which one is the oldest? What is now the Hilton Theater combined two of the old theaters, the Lyric and the Apollo. The Lyric is technically the oldest of those theaters, but a lot of it was taken away. Just bits of it remain. The oldest theater now, full theater, is the New Amsterdam, which is on the south side of 42nd Street. But there were theaters built prior to even that, right? Theater's been part of New York almost since its founding. There was a theater in Nassau Street that existed in the early 1700s. There were always theaters, but you know something? A lot of those old theaters didn't last because they burned down. They used to have gaslight in the theaters. They used to act, you talk about the limelight in the theaters. They used to actually burn sticks of lime to make light. That created a lot of problems when you had wooden theaters with fire in them. And so really it wasn't until the advent of electricity in New York City that the theaters stopped burning down. On Broadway, there is something called the ghost light. What is that exactly? Well, my friend, you have picked the right person to ask this because I collect ghost stories. And it's called the ghost light. And there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, It's now required by the unions. It supposedly prevents accidents, people wandering on stage and falling off the end of the stage. But in theatrical parlance, it is known as the ghost light because supposedly there are every theater supposedly has ghosts. I've actually tracked about 12 to 15 of the 40 Broadway theaters that actually have stories with ghosts. But they believe that without that light, the ghosts would take over the theater. Which theater has the most unique ghost story? Oh, Lordy. Uh, I would have to say the Palace Theater has the most ghosts. Supposedly, it has more than 100 ghosts, including Houdini and Judy Garland. But 
the theaters have very interesting stories. Some of them have very interesting ghosts. Perhaps the most active ghosts are Olive Thomas. She is uh, the ghost that haunts the um, New Amsterdam Theater that I mentioned a moment ago. She was active even this spring. She's been active all this summer. There have been sightings of her, not 100 years ago. I'm talking about 2008 there have been sightings of her. Uh, also, Mr. David Belasco, who built the Belasco Theater and whose apartment was above the theater, was seen this just this summer by the people in Passing Strange. One of the actors from Passing Strange saw Belasco, very distinctive look, sort of a mane of gray hair, and he always wore a clerical collar. They called him the Bishop of Broadway. He wasn't a bishop, but that was his affectation. And the actor saw this old white man in, in his dressing room mirror and he said we, he knew it was nobody from their cast. David Belasco actually had two theaters named after him at different yes, points in time. That is correct. That is correct. Um, he had an older theater. He was part of the, the tradition of the actor-playwright managers. They used to do everything in those days. They didn't have directors. The guy who owned the theater wrote the plays and staged them and often starred in them. And Belasco had a number of these. And he built the Belasco Theater for himself with his house in it. He lived at the theater. He was a consummate man of the theater. But there were a lot of people like that during the 19th century. Who were among the most notable architects of Broadway theaters? Probably the best known is a guy named Herbert J. Crapp. He built theaters across Times Square. He was known not only for the economy with which he designed the theaters and put them on the site, but also the wonderful acoustics within the theater. I was talking before about how you could hear all the way to the back of the house. He was the master of that, and he was in demand. And there's a famous story about the Ambassador Theater where they bought a plot that they couldn't actually fit the auditorium, the stage, the dressing rooms, and everything, either uh, the long way or the short way on the site. So he actually designed that theater. It actually runs diagonally across the site. If you go into the theater where right now Chicago is playing, you actually enter at one corner of the theater, and the lobby is sort of oddly, sort of trapezoidally shaped, and you go in and the theater is diagonally on the plot. That's Herb. Herb did that. We need to talk about the Schubert brothers, J.J. and Lee. They were responsible for building quite a few theaters in New York City, weren't they? Well, let's back up. There actually were three brothers. Originally, there was Sam Schubert. And in fact, the Schubert Theater on 44th Street is actually the Sam S. Schubert Theater. Sam was really the genius behind that family. They came from upstate Syracuse, at that time, there was an organization that really controlled the theaters across America, the syndicate, run by two guys uh, named Claw, great name, and Erlanger. And um, if you were on the outs with Claw and Erlanger, you could not get booked, you could not get a show, you could not tour a show. The Schuberts decided to contest him, and it was really Sam was the genius behind all of that. Sam was killed in a train accident, and his two brothers... Lee and J.J. sort of took over the company, and they, in the memory of their brother, made it what it was. And the, the name was such a, became such a powerful thing to conjure with that even though there hasn't been a Schubert at the Schuberts since the 1960s, the guys who run the company to this day are called the Schuberts, even though it is the Schubert organization. Jerry Schoenfeld, who passed away just last week, very sad, he was known as one of the Schuberts, even though he, he began as a lawyer. How many theaters did the Schuberts actually build? They built some theaters. They bought a lot of the theaters. Matter of fact, they had partnered with Irving Berlin to build the Music Box Theater back in the early 20s. And for many years, 
They owned half of the Music Box Theater. Berlin and then his daughters owned half of it. It was only in 2007 that the, his daughters finally sold out to the Schubert's and sold them their half share in the, uh, the Music Box. But they now own 17 theaters on Broadway, which is uh, about half of the theaters, the regularly booked theaters, but a lot of them are the most desirable of the theaters. They've maintained them beautifully, and they renovate them. Like when Cats ended its long run, they renovated the Winter Garden Theater beautifully. The Winter Garden Theater actually was the first theater that I was in to see my first show, Cats. Cats, Cats? yeah. I understand that the Winter Garden was built to resemble an English garden. Is that right? Well, you know, there were a lot of gardens built in the old days. There was the Olympia. There were a number of gardens. Niblo's Garden, which is where the first thing that we recognize as a musical was done. And don't forget, in those days, there was no air conditioning. People take air conditioning for granted. People wonder, why do shows run so long now and they didn't run so long in the old days? In the old days, the theatrical season ran from September to June. It was just too hot. Can you imagine being in August in a theater with lights? And a lot of time, as I mentioned, there was a period of time when they actually had fire in the theaters. It was lit by gaslight. So what they would do is they would open the roof of these buildings and they would have a theater on the top of the building so you could catch a breeze. And, of course, the city was a lot quieter in those days. And um, that's why you have all these gardens, gardens, gardens. And in some cases, they like to convey the sense of a garden, even though they were just a regular theater. And the Winter Garden was, was one of those. They were trying to give the impression of being a garden, whereas they weren't really a garden theater. There is another pair of brothers that we should talk about, and they are the... Chainin brothers, am I pronouncing that the right? The Chainins, yes. The Chainins, they, they built a number of theaters, too, certainly not as many as the, uh, as the Schubert's and some of the other uh, theater owners of the time. Perhaps their crowning glory was the uh, what's now the Richard Rogers Theater. It was the 46th Street Theater. It used to be called Chainin's 46th Street Theater. They came in from another industry, and they, they sort of started as dilettantes in the theater business, but they very rapidly became men of the theater, and they built... Uh, not a lot. They built about a half a dozen or so theaters, but a beautiful one. Certainly the Richard Rogers is where a lot of the Rogers and Hart shows opened. Of course, the Rogers and Hammerstein shows were mainly St. James and Majestic. St. James is a Jew Jamson house. The Majestic is a Schubert house. That's where most of the Rogers and Hammerstein shows opened. But uh, the Rogers, a number of the Rogers and Hart shows opened at the 46th Street, which is now the the was renamed after Richard Rogers, and they have posters from his shows up and things like that. It's a beautiful theater. You walk outside it. In the Heights is playing there now. Many theaters have had name changes through the years, with the exception of one, the Ethel Barrymore Theater. They wanted Ethel to come and establish a theater company at the theater. And she was a very big star, of course, a scion of the Barrymore family. The Barrymore and the Drew family went back to the 1820s. There was a Barrymore and a Drew, and they, Mrs. Drew was a, um, a famous uh, actress, and there were a number of Barrymores over the years. Now today, the actress Drew Barrymore is the, is the youngest of that clan, but her great-great-aunt is Ethel Barrymore, and to entice Ethel to come to the theater, they said they would name the theater after her. And they did, but they, she only appeared once. It was the last of the classically built Broadway theaters. Most of the Broadway theaters that you see were built between, that exist today, were built between 1903 and 1928. What happened in 1928? The beginning of the Great Depression. A number of theaters have been built since then. The Vivian Beaumont was built since then. In the 70s, they changed the zoning so that if you built a skyscraper and you put a theater in the bottom, in, in the Times Square area, that is, 
you would get tax breaks. And so now we have the Minskov Theater and the Gershwin Theater, which was originally the Eurus. A number of those were built. And then in the boom of the 90s, when they kind of restored uh, 42nd Street, a few more were added. But for the most part, most of the theaters that you see were built between 1903 and 1928. And that 1928 theater was the Ethel Barrymore. How much of an impact did the Great Depression have on New York City theaters? A tremendous impact, but it was paired. It wasn't just the Depression. A lot of theater owners were owned by crazy people who just loved the theater, and they would put on whatever they wanted in their own theaters. And a lot of them, they lived from hit to hit. A lot of these theaters now are owned by large corporations. If they have a flop in one theater, they'll have a hit in another, and so they can keep going. In the 30s, a lot of these guys, like Winthrop Ames, who owned the Little Theater, which is now the Helen Hayes, he had a couple of flops in a row, and that was it. That was his source of income, and he lost his theater. But it was also coupled with the advent of mass media. I mean, there had been movies had been competing with Broadway. Radio started competing more and more with Broadway. And then when talking films came in in 1927, uh-oh, this was rough because here was a medium similar to theater that was much cheaper. And so a lot of the theaters, don't forget, vaudeville died at this time. And a lot of people thought that legitimate theater was also going to die. They thought it was doomed. A lot of movie theaters... They thought, oh, well, we can buy these old Broadway theaters, put in a screen, bing, bang, boom, we're done, we have a theater. We don't have to build another one. So a lot of them were lost to cinema, but in a way that also preserved a couple of them because that screen went up, that screen could, screen could come down again. So some of the theaters that we have today were actually saved by that experience, but a lot of them then were lost, torn down. Some were turned into television. One of the most interesting theaters is what's now known as Studio 54. It was originally the Gallo Opera House. It was opened as a competitor to the Metropolitan Opera. Ha ha, forget about it. They Unfortunately, they opened it just as the Depression was getting rolling. And very quickly, it, turned, it was used for movies. Then it was turned into a television studio. It was on 54th Street, and the television studio was called Studio 54 because it was a studio. And only later did it become a disco. And they took out all the television cameras, and they turned it from a theater into a disco, and it was a disco for many years. They thought they would, might have to tear it down. Disco died out. And lo and behold, it has come full circle. They moved a revival of cabaret into the theater because it was so run down. They wanted that seedy look that the theater had, and God knows it had a seedy look. And, hey, it was a nice musical house. They put seats back in. Hey, this was built as an opera house. Now it's great for musicals. And then it was bought by the Roundabout Theater Company, and now they do their musical productions. They call it Studio 54 because that's what everybody knows it as, but it was the Gallo Opera House. I saw the Ritz there not too long ago that's with Rosie right. Perez, mm -hmm. and it was a great place to see a show. Lo and behold. They fixed it up. They made the house a little bit more of a rake. In the old days, I don't know, maybe people were shorter. I'm six foot four, and I can tell you there is a word that we can't say on the radio that I always hear when I sit down. There's somebody sitting behind me. My son is six eight. Now sometimes I take him, and that's really bad news. What a lot of the theaters have done, like when they rehabilitated the Biltmore Theater, which is now the Friedman, and when they rehabilitated Studio Fifty Four, they actually raised the back of the auditorium and lowered the front to create a little bit more of what they call stadium seating. In other words, the person sitting behind you is slightly. Elevated. I'm five one. People like you kill me, so I'm, I appreciate I'm sorry. that kind of we seating. We feel bad, and I actually have I have a slump that I do when I'm sitting in front. Like if I sit, get sat, like if I'll sit if I sit in front of a kid, sometimes I'll change places with the kid. But then you get the person behind the kid complaining. I was going to ask you that question though. What theater provides the best viewing? 
Oh, well, a number of them now provide, especially the newer theaters, are, are very good about providing good viewing. Some of the really old theaters, like the Lyceum, not only is the auditorium kind of, it needs a little bit more of a slope, but also the seats are very close together, which is a big issue for me. But a lot of the newer theaters, when they design them, they design them very wisely. Like when they rehabilitated the American Airlines Theater, nice place. And again, also, they've given it a little bit more of what they call a rake, in other words, a slant, so that uh, the people in the back don't aren't looking at the back of a head. How is Broadway doing today during these tough fiscal times? Is there concern? There's a, a tremendous concern. Some shows are still doing well. Jersey Boys is still selling out. Wicked is still selling out. A lot of the shows are still doing very well. But a lot of the older shows that might have hung on for a few more years, we're losing a lot of the big musicals. The musicals that have sort of defined the 21st century, I mean, Producers is gone, but Hairspray is closing in January. Monty Python's Spamalot is closing in January. Spring Awakening is closing. A lot of these shows that sort of defined the new century they're going bye-bye. Robert, people are hearing you this morning on Cityscape, but they can also hear you on Playbill Radio, right? Playbillradio.com. That's right. We play show music 24 hours a day. We break in at the top of each hour with theater news. We have three minutes and 30 seconds of theater news. And then we also have special programming where we interview Broadway personalities. And uh, we have a deal with Theater Talk, Channel 13. We rebroadcast their things. Robert, sure. thank you so much for coming in. You're very welcome. Robert Viagas is program director of Playbill Radio and the author of a dozen books on the theater. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. If you simply can't get enough of Broadway, you might want to check out an exhibition at the Museum of the City of New York. It's called Perform, a history of New York theater and Broadway. We recently checked it out. My name is Marty Jacobs, and I'm curator of the theater collection at the Museum of the City of New York. This exhibit is called Perform, and it tells the story that Broadway is New York and New York is Broadway. We have pictures and resumes of people of the hundreds who come here every New York. These are some of them who never made it. And then we move into the producers of theater, Cameron McIntosh, who's familiar to everybody with all of the English musicals he's brought here. One of them has now become the longest-running show in the history of New York, and it's called The Phantom of the Opera. Then Joe Papp, who's one claim to fame as far as Broadway is concerned, although he had many, was he brought to Broadway uh, Hair, the original musical uh, introducing us to that era of music. Over here we have some interesting items. One of them is an oversized fish skeleton, which was on the, uh, on the stage of Cats. Since cats had oversized scenery so that the people dressed as cats wouldn't look too grand. Are you blind when you're born? Can you see in the dark? Can you look at a king? Would you sit on his throne? Can you say of your bite that it's worse than your bark? Are you cut on the wall? Over here we have Bill Robinson, whose name was Bojangles. Here are his bronze dancing shoes, which he danced up Broadway at the age of 76. And then, of course, the biggest one of all, Rodgers and Hammerstein, 
whose shows are still going strong. In fact, the biggest hit on Broadway now is the revival of South Pacific. Costumes make a very, very quick biographical statement about a character. My name is Phyllis Magidson. I'm curator of costumes and textiles at the Museum of the City of New York. Before the character even opens his mouth on stage, you have already a preconceived notion of who that character is and possibly his function in a production. The Mrs. Potts costume from Beauty and the Beast is, is kind of a wonderful example of collaborative teamwork. Anne Hould Ward was commissioned to design the costume. The result is a very elaborate, three-dimensional, incredible costume that was so cumbersome for the original performer that she could not really continue wearing it throughout the production because it was just too difficult to navigate. Flabby, fat, and lazy. You walked in and oopsie-daisy. It's a guest. It's a guest. Sykes alive, well, I'll be blessed. Wine's been poured and thank the Lord I've had the napkin specially pressed. With dessert, she'll want tea. Also an iconic costume fragment, one of the top hats from the final chorus line in a chorus line, which is um, of the design of Theone Aldrich. One singular sensation, every little step she takes. One thrilling combination, every move that she makes. We preserve theatrical costumes here dating back to the mid-19th century. They're a nightmare of an object to conserve because they are not treated respectfully while they're in use. They're very frequently remade, handed down from one cast member to another, depending on when the production took place. We exhibit them, you know, with caution because, again, we know that the more time that an exhibition is up and keeps costume materials out, the fewer future opportunities we will have to show the same costumes. Give your attention. Do I really have to mention she's the one? Phyllis Magidson is curator of costumes and textiles at the Museum of the City of New York. We also heard from the curator of the museum's theater collection, Marty Jacobs. The exhibition, Perform, A History of New York Theater and Broadway, is ongoing. Broadway's playhouses aren't the only theaters worth talking about in New York City. The famed Beacon Theater on Manhattan's Upper West Side is currently undergoing a major renovation and will soon reopen fresher and brighter than ever. But to understand how the theater got to this point, we have to delve into its storied past. WFUV's Mary Wilson takes us on an exploration of the Beacon's past, present, and future. I'm on Broadway between 74th and 75th Street. Yes. That's Mark Tarazi, my tour guide for the Beacon Theater. We are outside where you can see the marquee as well as the historic front door. From a landmark designation standpoint, the landmark designation begins right here at the entrance to the box office. And we have a pretty unique um, box office, what we refer to as the birdcage, the circular box office that sits out front. The Beacon was built as a classic movie palace in the 1920s. Since then, it has hosted vaudeville acts, traditional Japanese kabuki, gospel performers, and rock bands. But the Beacon stage is empty now. A thorough restoration process is underway to revive the elements of the theater that evoke its roots in the Roaring Twenties. 
Tarazi is overseeing the restoration. You enter through the box office. It is intentionally designed with a lower ceiling so that you escape the street, you come into a compressed space, and then you enter what is our grand rotunda here, where the wow really starts to happen at the Beacon Theater. The community that surrounds the theater is no less extraordinary. Dan Meltzer lives just around the corner from the Beacon. In uh, 1985, uh, a small item appeared in the New York Times saying that a developer had leased the Beacon Theater, which is right around the corner from my apartment on Broadway and 74th Street, uh, with the intention of converting it to the city's, if not the world's, largest discotheque. Converting the Beacon into a discotheque would have meant altering a historic theater in spite of its landmark status. The streets that flank the Beacon are residential, and neighbors at the time weren't ready to invite all the crowds and late-night ruckus that come with a nightclub. Meltzer organized a committee of Westsiders to testify against the disco developers. To help launch a strong campaign, the committee enlisted the professional expertise of publicist Joyce Matz. These are press releases that I sent out. I think I was sending out a press release a day. And we would meet once a week. We would sit there and plot and plan and figure out what we could do to gain support, to raise money. Because when you fight a fight like this, one of the difficult, most difficult problems is raising money. You have to raise money to raise money. I mean, it's, it's a big job. What this involved was fighting the city of New York and fighting the, the Landmarks Commission because the interior of the Beacon Theater is a landmark. It is also on the Register of Historic, National Register of Historic Places, and it cannot be altered without permission from the Landmarks Commission. So the Save the Beacon Theater Committee was formed, and they organized street fairs and concerts to finance a lawsuit against the Landmarks Commission. And the Landmarks Commission voted against us after weeks of hearings. We had to actually take them to court, and we sued the Landmarks Commission uh, and the city of New York, and we won. So the developers appealed to the case to the State Court of Appeals, and ultimately the appeals court voted against us. However, during that period of time, that theater was sitting there doing nothing. And so in order to recoup some of their investment, they started booking music acts in there. And it became so successful that they decided not to go forward with their original plan in the first place and, and, and end up making more money for them than they would have if they had converted to a discotheque. And it's perpetually in business because it, nothing was changed. Renowned performances from the Allman Brothers, Yoko Ono, and the Rolling Stones renewed the Beacon's reputation. It was now not only a landmark, but a rock house. And as soon as the Beacon began bringing money back into the community, talk of alterations evaporated. You're sitting and talking to someone who's actually sued the city of New York and won, which is a pretty uh, amazing thing when I think about it. Eventually, uh, you know, courts ruled against us, but we won uh, a significant enough victory to prevail. And that's what the key word is, to prevail. And we prevailed. This whole Save the Beacon movement uh, was about two things, really. It was about saving the landmark theater and its importance to New York and to our region. Uh, it was also about community, that people in the community should have a say 
as to what happens in that community. The beacon is safe now, but Joyce Matz says the larger job of safeguarding those things that are important to the city will never be finished. I hope that future generations will be as vigilant as we have tried to be saving landmarks. I hope enough young people take an interest in saving our history, our city's history. At the moment, the beacon is closed. I asked Dan Meltzer if he wanted to see the beacon after the restoration is finished. I want to see it. I want to see it in its full, in its full glory. I want to see everything clean and shiny, all those beautiful gold statues, that hanging tent ceiling. That is a hanging ceiling. Back at the beacon with my tour guide, Mark Tarazi, the theater that was saved by the Upper West Siders now sits empty. Seats have been taken out, and there's a maze of scaffolding along the walls to bring murals covered in years of cigarette smoke back to life. So as we enter into the, the auditorium, pop into what is this grand space um, of just a very eclectic mix of architecture, um, themes from Grecian statues to it's a lot about the adventure, the travel, the taking you away you know, from the everyday. It's on stage that I have the best vantage point of the entire theater. Every wall is covered with murals and ornate decoration. An enormous chandelier is suspended from above. The great tent that hangs from the ceiling couches every sound that reverberates from the stage. Even as it is stripped down during these first stages of restoration, the theater looks majestic. And it seems like everyone has their own personal story to tell about the beacon. Alice Cooper was one of my better shows that I actually saw here. So that's even a great example of a great act on stage, the theater actually contributing to that because of the vibe of the theater. And one of my bigger memories there, you could just tell even that Alice Cooper really enjoyed playing here. There aren't many places that you can come and see a rock show and you step out and you've got this giant ornamentation, these giant swords, all this stuff staring down at you. I mean, it's just a very interesting place you know, to see a show compared to just a blank empty room. Once again, Dan Meltzer. Someone was quoted as saying, by, by pure luck, this theater survived. And it wasn't by luck. It was because of the people in this neighborhood, literally hundreds of people in this neighborhood. The Beacon Theater will reopen in February. For Cityscape, I'm Mary Wilson. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer McCall Neria. Have a great weekend.